0: Inspiring stories, practical applications. Doing ministry well. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com. Doing ministry well. All right, thank you everyone for checking into another episode of Doing Ministry Well. We're doing another living room session here in uh, the beautiful Manoa Valley, and it is hot today, and we're not running any fans so that. The sound quality can be a little better for you guys, so you're welcome in advance. I'm glad you cannot, (laughs) uh, yeah, feel the heat. (laughs) So hopefully you're listening to this in the AC. Um, I'm Jim Baker, your host, and today we are joined by Steve Gregg, who is a radio host of his own radio show, and uh, also the author of two books, Revelation, Four Views, a Parallel Commentary, and uh, his most recent book, All You Want to Know About Hell, Three Christian Views on God's final solution to the problem of sin. So, Steve, thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me.
0: Um, Steve, I don't think I've ever met anyone with as much biblical knowledge as you, and so it's a real honor to, yeah, to sit here and interview Mm -hmm. you. Um, It's it's funny just to have normal conversation with you because it's your voice, and I've just listened to so many teachings, and I'm like, well, that's Steve Gregg's voice. So, that's (laughs) That's pretty funny. Um, but I remember one time we went out to uh, lunch, we got some Thai food the first time I met you, and I asked you this question of how, what's, what's, the, what's the key to having as much Bible knowledge as um, you do. And your response was super humbling to me. Uh, you said, well, some people really love baseball and they can tell you uh, who won the World Series in a certain year. And you just said, man, I'm just really passionate about the word of God. And so that's how I'm able to let you know the parallels just because you're passionate about it. So thank you so much for your passion for the word of God. And uh, yeah, and, and your teaching as well. It's really encouraged my wife and I and, and so many. So um, Steve, why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, yeah, how long you've been in ministry?
1: Well, uh, I'm 62 years old and I began in ministry I would say when I was 16 okay I was still in high school but it was that's the age I was when I was first asked to teach the Bible for uh, on a daily basis really at lunchtime at at the school high school I was in Um, this was in Southern California during the early stages of the Jesus movement and so I was part of that movement and so were lots of other kids at our school it began with us just uh, we'd go to calvary chapel every night uh, they had bible teaching there every night and then the next day at school at lunchtime we just get together eat our lunch and talk about the bible and eventually before very long actually the others that we were meeting together with which was a very casual informal meeting they asked if i would be willing to teach a bible study at lunch every day now, I had never been a Bible teacher, but I was raised a Christian. I was raised knowing a lot about the Bible
2: mm-hmm.
1: i mean i a lot for for my age I didn't know a lot compared to what I consider to be being very literate in the Bible now but right. um, as a teenager i was I, I was more biblically literate than these others who were mostly just new converts, mm-hmm. so i didn't have to know a lot and so I took them up on it, and I I began to teach Bible studies at lunchtime at school every day in my uh, first semester of my senior year, hmm. and I graduated when I was seventeen, and I've been in the ministry ever since. Uh, not full time all the time. I would I, I would gladly have been full time all the hmm. time, but you know when you're seventeen years old, believe it or not, there's <laughs> not that many f- full time <laughs> things you can do in ministry unless you hire yourself out. But I. I uh, actually never have sought a job in ministry ever. Mm-hmm. I've never, never worked for an organization or a church like on a, on a payroll of mm-hmm. any kind. I, to me, I'm just a. <clears throat> I see myself as a layman, although I was ordained years and years ago, mm-hmm. but I, I, just by you know, informally by Calvary Chapel, really. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't ever use my ordination for anything. I just, to me, I, I'm no more. Uh, No more or less in ministry with ordination or without it, you know, it's Hmm. just, I was called to teach and that's what I do. And so I, uh, for the first 12 years of my ministry, I would work jobs and support myself and then teach in all my free time, Hmm. study and teach in all my Hmm. free time. I actually never went to Bible school. I, when I got out of high school, I had opportunities to minister and I took those opportunities instead of going to school. But I also, those opportunities also were, uh, gave me uh, occasion to study a lot too. Hmm. And I, I do love to study. Like you said, when you met me before, you asked you know, how, what, what the secret is to know the Bible well. And I, to my mind, the answer is to love it. But, but not only to love it, but to have the leisure available to study it. Not everyone has that time, they have to work full time jobs and so forth. And I, I just, in my teen, late teen years and early 20s, i would just uh, work part time jobs mm-hmm. and and just live subsistence level so that i could have hours to study and hours to teach so i was uh, although i was not in full i would i would not say i was full time industry because mm-hmm. of was working job i was teaching about nine times a week usually wow uh, in evenings and other and daytimes mm-hmm. and stuff in different venues these were these were on high school campuses and christian coffee houses home bible studies and such and sometimes you know in church groups but um i was just I, I never looked for a career in ministry or a job in ministry i just figured i'm available you mm-hmm. know and so because there were lots of people who wanted bible teaching i was invited a lot to teach mm-hmm. and that's kind of what i what i've done ever since i've been 40 has been 45 years now or something wow. like that and and i've still never worked for an organization i've still never had a job in the ministry but i've been full-time for the past more than 30 years.
0: Mm. Yeah. Wow. Uh, tell us a little bit about your, your radio show.
1: Well, that started up in 97, 1997. It was not my first experience uh, in radio, but it was the first time I had. Well, it wasn't even that. Let me just say, I, I've always liked radio, uh, Christian radio I've listened to since I was young. And I remember when Walter Martin was living uh, back in the early 70s, he started the Bible Answer Man program. Mm-hmm. People would phone in and ask questions. And, He'd give answers to people on the air, and I remember listening to that and thinking, "Well, I'd like to do that." You know, I I did a lot of Bible question answering for people in different situations. I'd like to be able to reach a lot of people on the air like that, uh, but I didn't have that opportunity for many, many, many years. But eventually, I did uh, rent uh, or buy some radio time on mm-hmm. a small station in Oregon where I was living, and had a weekly show. And that went on for a while, and then. I ran out of money because I didn't, uh, didn't have much money and not many people were sending any in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did the same thing later in another larger town in Oregon and that lasted for a little while. And went off there too. But what, ha- what I mostly did, what, what led to my present radio show, is that a friend of mine had a daily talk show on a Christian station, two hours a day and he initially had me on as a guest because his was kind of a guest driven show mm-hmm. and um he had me on as a guest and he, he said well, what would you like to talk about and i said well why don't we just let your people call in and ask bible questions mm-hmm. so he said okay we can do that if you want and so we did that it went real well for two hours so he had me do it again and again. And eventually he just had me take over the show on Mondays for oh. him. So he'd get a three-day weekend. Nice. So it was his. at, it was at his expense. Mm-hmm. I was on uh, once a week for two hours just answering Bible questions. Well, at the end of about seven years of that, he says, you know, I have some listeners who say they only listen when you're not on and others who say they only listen when you are on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, I think you probably could make it with your own show. And I said, well, I don't know anything about radio business I'm just a bible teacher and he said well I'll I'll do all the legwork for you so he he actually negotiated with the first station I was on and and uh, he did some fundraising and stuff like that was really generous of him Hmm. and eventually I had uh, my own daily show Uh, it's called the narrow path and it started in 1997 it's been daily ever since with with one one hiatus uh, after about the first four years I had to take a year off because of some family issues Mm -hmm. and then I went back on the air and now we're on quite a, quite a lot of stations, but even perhaps more significantly, you know, on on the internet, we're here all over the world.
2: Right. That's
0: excellent. And yeah, tell us a little bit about the two, two books you've written.
1: Well, I'm not much of a writer. I mean, I, well, I, I write a lot of... I don't write books a lot.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, the, the first book I wrote is called Revelation Four Views, a parallel commentary. And it was written because I was... I had a Bible school I was running uh, for 16 years, and I was teaching Revelation, and I had only been really taught one view of Revelation all my life from my teachers, but I had discovered there were some other views from reading books and things like that, and I wasn't sure which view was correct, but I knew there were several views that had merit. So I I bought all the commentaries on Revelation I could get, and I read about 12 commentaries for each of the four views, so almost 50 commentaries altogether. And I realized that, you know, there's no reason why this can't all be put in one book Mm -hmm. because obviously a lot of the commentaries repeated each other, but I thought, well, there must be one book somewhere that puts all four views side by side so a person could not have to buy 50 commentaries. They could just (laughs) kind of read through. So I actually went on a search for that. I didn't want to write a book like that. I just was looking for a book like that. I looked for it for many, many years, I'd say 10 years, probably. And eventually it was clear no one had bothered to do that. And so I thought, well, if I could find a publisher to publish it, I wouldn't mind doing the work, I suppose. Hmm. Um, So I wasn't really an author up to that point. But I did approach some publishers and Thomas Nelson was interested. So I wrote. And of course, that book is a a commentary. Actually, it's four commentaries. It goes through the book of Revelation and has four columns. Under each passage and gives the, f- the view from each of the four views all the way through. so it's like four commentaries, one from each of the four yeah. views. and as you know, it doesn't advocate any one view it's just just presents the strengths and weaknesses and arguments for each view so the reader can make up their own mind and that's all I did I, I didn't uh, you know I didn't write any more books after that for a long time. that came out in 90, 1997 and by oh I think 2013 I hadn't written another book. Hmm and somebody notified me that Thomas Nelson was advertising a revised and updated version of my book on Revelation coming out in you know, the next fall or something. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, that's interesting that the publisher's <laughs> putting out a revised and updated version of my book, and I don't even know it. I didn't revise it or update it. I thought, what's right. up with that? So I called the publisher, and it turns out I had moved a few times since the last time we'd been in touch because you know, they'd published my book years earlier. Right. Um, and they weren't sure how to reach me, so they were glad I called. I said, I said, I heard somewhere that you're revising and updating my book. And they said, well, they said, we're not really revising it. They said, we're going to we're gonna set it. We're going to add a few books to the bibliography and call it revised and updated. But they said, if you really would like to revise it, we'd be glad to have, have you do it right, right. now. Uh, this is the right time. So I said I would, and I did. That year, I did revise the whole book. I didn't make too many changes, but a few changes here and there, and it came out in paperback. It was hardback before, and so. But I also said to them when I had them on the phone, I said, "I'm working on a, I'm studying out for another project, which was on the three views of hell." I described it to them, and they said, "Well, send us, send us what you've got in a proposal." So I, I wrote to them, told them what I had in mind, they and they bought that too. Mm. So uh, that book came out the same year. So the revised version of my revelation book came out the same year that my second book came out which was on the three views of hell mm-hmm. in both cases like the three views of hell i don't i don't advocate any one view i just once more there there are three views that evangelicals hold and uh, they're very actually hotly debated right now because one of them is the view that hell is an annihilation so it's not not eternal torment and another view is the one that rob bell made so controversial that you know hell is a place where people can repent and be saved from there after they're there. And, and the arguments for those views are, you know, at one time I would have thought it would be ridiculous to argue anything other than the traditional view. Mm-hmm. But once again, I did a lot of reading, uh, evangelical authors who held these views, and I realized each one has more in its favor than most people know. And so I wrote uh, the book on the three views of hell, comparing the three views, mm-hmm. the pros and the cons of each view, but I didn't advocate any one view.
0: Yeah, we'll make sure to put both of your books in the podcast notes so our listeners can uh, check that out. But real quick, can you briefly run us through the uh, four views of Revelation since yeah. some of our listeners might not want the, might not know what those are?
1: Yeah, you know, the four views of Revelation are, uh, first of all, the, most, the best known view is the futurist view. And as the name implies, that is the view that Revelation is talking about things that are still future. That is, the fulfillment has not yet happened. It'll happen in the future. And that is the most popular view these days, but it's also the most modern view. It's the newest. That view didn't exist 200 years ago. Not, not among Protestants. It actually did exist among some Catholic scholars uh, 200 years ago, but, but it wasn't until more recent than that that any Protestants ever accepted it. It arose originally in 1590-something with the Jesuit uh, writer, but um, it's the newest of the four views, and that is that Revelation is about the future. And of course, most of us have been taught no other view than that. There's a view that was around a lot longer, and that's the historicist view. That's the second view. The historicist view holds that Revelation is talking about the whole church age. So from John's day when he wrote it to the second coming of Christ, which is still future, that whole period of time is described in the visions of Revelation. So you're kind of going through a period of 2,000 years as you read through uh, the book of Revelation. And that view isn't very widely taught or heard now though it was the only view the Protestant church held for 300 years. Uh, all the Protestant, all the Reformers believed it. They believed the historicist view of Revelation. Um, and it was the Protestant view up until the emergence of the Futurist view that bumped it. Um, that view is still taught, the historicist view is still taught by the Seventh Adventists and by maybe a few other groups, but not many, not many groups hold it anymore. Um, the preterist view the word preter means past it's a latin word for past so just as the futurist view argues that the revelation is going to be fulfilled in the future the preterist view holds it was fulfilled in the past so you've got these three three different time frames you've got is it about the whole age of the church or just a few years at the end or a few years at the beginning of the church age the preterist view takes the last of those views that it's uh, it, it was fulfilled shortly after it was written and most most preterists believe that it was written before 70 a.d during the reign of nero which is not the most uh, it's not the uh majority view among evangelicals today Mm -hmm. but it was at one time and it could be again i mean it's just there's no real proof uh whether it was nero's reign or domitian's reign but there are evidences Mm. for each Uh, but at one time scholars felt like it was during nero's reign most of them some still believe that. Uh, others, probably the majority now, believe it's in Domitian's reign, which would be in the 90s. Hmm. But the, it's important to the preterist view, because if it's predicting the destruction of Jerusalem, well, that happened in 70 AD, and therefore no such prediction would be made 25 years later, you know, in the reign of right. Domitian. Right. So that, that view requires an early date of writing, and it, it is teaching that the book of Revelation is like the Olivet Discourse it's about the fall of Jerusalem the destruction destruction of the Jewish order the temple and all of that mm-hmm. and then the idealist view is the view that it's uh, that revelation isn't really talking about events specific events in time but that it's a symbolic drama depicting spiritual concepts and doctrines and things oh. like that so that the sovereignty of god and the spiritual warfare between christians and the powers of darkness Christ's victory over Satan, uh, the vindication of martyrs in heaven you know after they die those are concepts that are true really all the time, and it is thought by the idealist view that revelation is just depicting those concepts in uh, graphic you know dramatic form hmm. so that the idealist view isn't really looking for fulfillments in the past or the present or the future it's just seeing these truths, these ideals uh, as being depicted in in the story a little bit like say if we would read uh, c.s lewis's the book the great divorce about heaven and hell mm-hmm. you know and that it's a story a dream lewis claimed he had of course he didn't really have this dream but in the you know to tell the story he talks about having had, had a dream and busloads of people from hell would go up to heaven and see and hear conversations and so forth and it was a device by which c.s lewis really communicated some philosophical and theological ideas about Heaven and Hell mm-hmm. in the form of a story. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress is another example of that kind of thing, you know, where John Bunyan wasn't writing about an actual case, he was writing a fictional story that that symbolized biblical doctrines, really. Mm-hmm. And so the idealist view holds that revelations like that. It's uh, fictional, you know, dramatic visions that are uh, just Illustrating spiritual truths. Hmm. Hmm.
0: Yeah, thanks for uh, clearing that up for us because uh, before I ever heard you teach, I thought that the four views were going to be about the millennium, and I didn't even realize that there were four views. So I but, assume that some of our listeners. Well, are there
1: are different it. views of the millennium, but, but the millennium is not the subject matter of Revelation. I mean, only one chapter in Revelation has the millennium in it. So the question would be what about the rest of the book? Right, yeah. Right.
0: Um, Steve, what's been your uh, highlight in all of your time of ministry? I know you were uh, started out in the beginning of, of the Jesus Movement, which is just, I've been blessed to interview a lot of people recently that have lived through that epic era. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would you say is the highlight of your time in ministry?
1: Well, you know, I hate to look way back at the beginning and say that was the highlight because that sounds like it's been all downhill since then. Mm-hmm. But the truth is that uh, there was a highlight when I was 16 which was when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit in the Jesus movement. I had been raised as a Baptist and, a, and an evangelical. I was I knew my Bible reasonably well, but I didn't know anything about Pentecostal charismatic stuff at all, never, never encountered it mm-hmm. in our church. And when I went to Calvary Chapel in 1970, I first encountered people who claimed to have something called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which I had never even heard of. Mm-hmm. And so I studied. That for several weeks in the Bible to see if it was true and like the Breins and uh, I concluded that this was a biblical thing that for some reason I had not been taught in all my years of being a Christian. Mm -hmm. So I went back to Calvary Chapel and asked somebody to lay hands on me and pray for me, and it did. It just changed my whole life. I'm uh, God became so real suddenly to me just in that moment, and since, you know, and that was my whole ministry's been a highlight Mm -hmm. since then. If I before I was baptized in the Spirit, I figured I was going in the ministry. Even in junior high, I thought I'd be going in the ministry. But I figured it'd be just being a pastor of a Baptist church or something like that. And I have to say, that wouldn't have suited me real well at all. And it would have been... I, I'd probably have been frustrated and eventually burned out trying to run a church. But because of the way God redirected me at that time... In the Jesus movement, there was much more street Christian kind of a culture. You know, you didn't have to be a church pastor. You could be a street evangelist or teach Bible studies in coffee houses and homes and whatever. And that's what I did. And that was was so much more gratifying to me than being the pastor of some religious organization would be. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say that although I was on a ministry path before that time in my mind that really redirected me and, and and made jesus real and alive to me in a way that has never changed i it hasn't been downhill from there that was like a peak and i've stayed mostly at that peak i mean there have been trials and so forth but i mean uh, in 45 years of ministry, i've 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 had no regrets about any part of uh, the ministry that i've done and and never envied anybody else in ministry. Uh, some people are doing bigger things than i'm doing and i I wouldn't mind doing such things, but I'm really, really satisfied uh, just doing the next thing God puts in front of me. And that's, that's what I've done. I've done a lot of different things. I've traveled around the world, uh, sometimes teaching for YWAM, sometimes teaching for other organizations, sometimes just going on my own and doing street ministry, you know, without any invitation at all. Yeah. And uh, and then I've I've published, not only, I mean, I've had those books, but. When I was younger, I was a cartoonist, and I drew a lot of Christian comic book tracks and things. And I was for a while a musician in a Christian band. So I've done, uh, you know, I've I've really never had been able to get bored with the ministry. There's so much variety of what I've done. And then the the rate I ran a Bible school for sixteen years while I was still traveling for YWAM and doing other things. And that that even overlapped the radio show. But now the radio show has replaced the Bible school for me. But I just I don't know. Everything has been an adventure since I was sixteen, yeah. and uh, I've I, to me it's been like the Book of Acts, uh, that, that, and that, that's something I actually was aware of when I got baptized in the spirit. That that before that, reading something like the Book of Acts would be reading like ancient history of the Norse gods or something like that. I, mean, I, I knew it was true history, but it was so far far from my experience. Right, it just you know it's like reading the iliad and the odyssey or something you know mm-hmm. whereas uh after i was baptized in the spirit when i read the book of acts you seem like oh yeah it's like it's like what i'm going through that's what my friends are doing you know right. i mean i mean we weren't all working miracles although there were miracles happening uh, but uh i wasn't a miracle worker but but just having the dynamic of the holy spirit leading us and doing things and saving people and stuff it was just somehow the, it put me in the story mm-hmm. more you know yes yeah. That's awesome. That was definitely a highlight.
0: Yeah. Um, something I so appreciate about you, Steve, is, is just your logical teaching. And I think you mentioned baptism in the Holy Spirit. I think a lot of times the, the charismatic Pentecostal camp will be so experiential and just kind of throw the Bible out. And I really love that you've brought both of those things together. And uh, your tongues teaching that you have on your website um, is just so clear. And tongues can be a a subject where people, you know, get all up in arms. But I really appreciate that teaching. So I'll I'll include a a link to your tongues teaching as well um, (laughs) in, in the podcast notes. On the flip side of that, what's been the biggest struggle in ministry and how have you overcome
1: that? Um... You know, my life has had uh, a series of s- tremendous trials, but they haven't been brought on by the ministry. Hmm. Uh, they've they've happened in the context of ministry only because I that's been the context of my whole life. I mean, I've had family uh, crises, I've had um, partners who've betrayed me, and things like that over the years. I've had a lot of a lot of disillusionment with people and things like that. I suppose that would be. I mean, a lot of these guys were people who were in ministry with me. And, of course, my whole family was in, involved in the ministry. So, you know, losing family members and things like that uh, would, would be somehow related to the ministry. But to me, uh, those are just things in my life. They could happen if I was in ministry or, or, or not in ministry. As far as specific struggles in the ministry, I think the biggest struggle I, I had when I was younger was knowing how to... Uh, knowing how to how to be good at what I was doing and be humble about it, you know, uh, because before I was really in the ministry, I was a musician and, and stuff. And like, you know, you, you kind of like the attention you get when you're a rock rocker, you know, and yeah. and uh, and I, I kind of eventually put that aside to be a teacher. But for a while, they overlapped. I was in a Christian rock band for many years and, and teaching the Bible, too. And trying to decide which was really going to be the main emphasis. Eventually, I decided that uh, teaching was going to be more fruitful than music. But still, this uh, this perf- being a performer was really a hard thing to get over. Uh, um, when I before I was in the ministry and when I was playing secular, you know, music, you really you really want people to applaud. You really want people to think you're good, and and uh, you want to have a name for yourself in of a way. And then so when I got into Christian music, it was like the opposite. I knew that was inappropriate. I knew that having the applause of man, you know, is no more appropriate for a Christian musician than for a, a, an evangelist or something. You know, I mean, you don't do it for the applause of right. man. But when you're young and uh, and people adulate you somewhat, it, it's it is uh, kind of hard to keep your head on right. And but I, but I, at least I was aware of the problem. I mean, I. You know, I I knew from the time I went started the ministry in '16 that being humble and glorifying God and you know not making a name for myself that these were the things that were the values of ministry, and and therefore that I needed to do all I could to maintain that. But I do remember as a young man having issues with pride that would rise up and 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 trying to keep it down. You know, I mean, just because you do get compliments in the Jesus movement, especially there were thousands and thousands of people who were new converts and you know they thought i knew everything because i had been a christian most of my life and because mm-hmm. i was teaching and so I, I got a lot of praise and a lot of compliments and a lot of attention and there was something in, in the jesus moment being a being a, a bible teacher was almost like being a, a small-time rock star you know and so so yeah. when you know that people are thinking highly of you it's you know the, the struggle is to to maintain the the humility that you know is appropriate, and um, and I never felt that I did real well at that. I actually felt that uh, I felt like I probably had more manifestations of pride in my life, to my chagrin, than humility. I just I didn't want to put on a fake humility, but I didn't want to be proud. It's, 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 that's the struggle, you know how to how to be successful, how to be uh, good at what you do, and have people you know compliment you all the time. And still just not have that get to you, not have that get to your head. Uh, the the thing that I think probably I remembered more than anything else was Paul's statement of 1 Corinthians 4, 7, where he says, what makes you differ from anyone else? And what do you have that you haven't received? You know, if you received it, why would you glory as if you didn't receive it? That is, you know, if somebody has a gift in any area, if they have, you know, they're a great actor or a great musician, which I'm not, but I never was a great musician, but, uh, but, I mean, if you're really good at something like that, you're good-looking, athletic. I'm naming things that aren't true of me at this point. But, <laughs> but but the the thing is that if you have those things that the world admires, um, you really only have things that God has given you. You didn't earn those. Mm. You may have developed them. You know, you might have had a natural tendency, to uh, an aptitude, but, and you worked on it to get better at it. Well, what else would you do? You're going to work on something. Of course, you're going to work on what you're good at. Right. But but if you're good at it it's cuz god made you good at it and i i remember very well when i was 16 talking to another christian friend actually a musician who was in the band with the christian band i remember saying to him you know i and i, I was very young at the time and i remember saying i you know i think that the, the talents god's given me he, i don't think he wants me to use them to make money or to make a name for myself obviously it seems only right that anything god's given should be used for his glory hmm. So I've never been able to bring myself to be a professional at anything. I've never charged for any kind of ministry. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm just a volunteer wherever I teach or or when we played music and stuff. We never charged because I always felt like, well, this is this is for the Lord. This is not for us. You know, it's not it's not a way for us to get wealthy or famous or anything like that. And, that, and so that, that's the struggle, I suppose, in modern ministry, I would think especially because there are so many superstars mm-hmm. with television, even, even with the internet, you know, there's people with their, with their own YouTube channels that have their big followings and so forth. Uh, and then there's the rock stars, you know, when I was playing Christian rock and roll music, they, they didn't have any Christian labels recording. Mm-hmm. We, were, we were just playing like in parks and schools and coffee houses and wherever we could, sometimes in churches too, but it was all evangelistic music. Mm-hmm. And there was no one recording that back then. Right. Then uh, my band broke up around the time that labels did start forming through that. So I was never recorded. Mm-hmm. And uh, and once the labels were there, it became, you know, an opportunity for people who weren't good enough to be famous in the world. You know, they could join a, a smaller talent pool and be at near the top, not top of the talent pool, and and make albums and and uh, you know, so you'd have somewhat. In, they were good musicians, but not quite at the level of the secular stars. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they could be a big fish in a small pond easier than a big fish in a big pond. Mm-hmm. So, I, I actually, unfortunately, when the musical uh, r- Christian rock labels formed, in addition to good bands who were real good Christians, there were a lot of people who were just in it for the wrong reason, and mm-hmm. they got to be this rock star that's that's money to be made, and so forth. Keith Green, uh, by the way, who is a friend of mine, uh, really stood out in his day because he decided that you know the, the industry had gone the wrong way in charging money and making rock stars other people, so he wouldn't charge for his concerts or his records or anything. And that really offended people in the industry because it made them look bad, they thought. But he was just, actually Keith did that like in 1979, but I was in the music 1970 to 1972, 73, and we never would charge. I mean, no one would charge back then. But once it began to be a recording industry, and suddenly, you know, there's money to be made and promotions and sales of albums and stuff, and it it really got to attract a lot of worldly people. But and it's and we're living now thirty, forty years after that, where that's just integrated into the mentality of ministry. You're going to make money. You know, I uh, if you're a good musician, you you can charge a lot of money. You're going to sell records. And I think that that's the biggest challenge in ministry for people who allow themselves to go that direction is. How do you avoid turning the ministry into a job? Mm. I mean, there's, it's, there's a difference between being uh, a, a rock star hero, whether it's in music or something else, on the one hand, and being a, some, a humble servant of God on the other. And how do you keep the attitude of a servant when you're charging big bucks for the ministry you're doing? I don't, I, I've, I've never had to balance those two things. so I've never charged, and, I, and th- that's the reason I have. But it's, it certainly is a challenge anyone in ministry might face if they're really good at what they do.
0: Yeah. You mentioned specifically just that struggle with pride when you're getting a lot of accolades. Um, what, what was that process in your head? You mentioned that Bible verse as well. Do you just have to, as soon as you get that praise, just remember that Bible verse? Or?
1: Yes. I mean, you, uh, you really have to fear God. You know, I mean... Like I said, when I got baptized in the Spirit, God was really real to me in a different way. And I, when God is real to you, you fear the Lord, mm-hmm. and you realize that God's jealous over His glory. And if He gives you something, and you take the glory for it instead of giving Him the glory, remember what happened to Herod when he took the glory that belonged to God, and the angel of the Lord struck him, and mm-hmm. worms ate him, and he died. You know, in in Acts chapter twelve, I uh, I've always remembered that. You know, I mean. Mm-hmm. It's a good good thing to keep in mind. I mean, I feared God when it, when people would compliment me. I wanted to make sure, you know, that I didn't even begin in my own mind to take the credit that was God's in the matter. Because and and really, all the credit is His. Because I I was given some gifts that I didn't do anything to acquire. I mean, I was born in a Christian home. That was an advantage. I was I had a, a propensity to study the Bible when I was young not everyone had that and I didn't I can't take credit for that I mean I just that's the way I was inclined you know and then I mean everything I have has been a gift to me and I knew some of those things are things you can get attention and praise from man for but I dare not I was terrified of the idea that what God owned that I would try to steal for myself and so it uh, you know I lived in kind of the fear of God about that I, when we were playing when we were musicians we wouldn't let audiences applaud mm-hmm. if they applauded we'd tell them not to and stuff I mean that's mm-hmm. that's just the mentality we had in those days nowadays it's very different not for me but for the music ministries and so forth but uh, anyway I just if you, if you fear God and you realize that man I don't want to be taking anything from God that's His, his, his the credit or the glory or the attention uh you'll find ways to to stay keep yourself low, hmm. but it's it's a struggle sometimes because people want to put you up
0: yeah you mentioned uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit being the highlight of your ministry. Um, can you just talk a little bit more about what that is for our listeners that, that really have no no hmm. clue what that is
1: well um Obviously, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as I'm talking about, is often discussed in Charismatic or Pentecostal circles. Not always with all the same assumptions, but, you know, for example, Pentecostals assume if you're baptized in the Spirit, you'll speak in tongues. I don't assume that, uh, but I do believe speaking in tongues is a very common uh, phenomenon that often accompanies being baptized in the Spirit. In my case, I was baptized in the Spirit, I didn't speak in tongues immediately, I did some months later, but I, I've never placed any real emphasis on speaking in tongues, which say Pentecostals, they really do, I mean, in Pentecostal circles, speaking in tongues is a rite of passage, you know, if you don't speak in tongues, you really haven't arrived at where you're supposed to be as a Pentecostal. Whereas I believe I believe being baptized in the Spirit is just being filled with the Spirit. and When you're filled with the Spirit, you're filled with Jesus and the the biggest evidence of that is that you have the character of Jesus. You have the fruit of the Spirit and whatever gifts he gives you. Tongues being very common, not universal, but very common and and other gifts too. I I mean, I certainly value in my life the gift of teaching more than the gift of tongues. Hmm. I think the gift of teaching is more likely to bring about fruit in the body of Christ than the gift of tongues is in my case and although tongues is something that I do use as in prayer, I've, I've actually never spoken in tongues in public, uh, but I pray in tongues as well as English at times, but, but to me that's not what the baptism of the spirit is about, the baptism of the spirit is about being empowered to live and be like Jesus, to have Christ's spirit dominate. The way you think and act and feel and empower the things that you do in His name—it's uh, we see in the in the Bible that Jesus, after He trained His disciples with the best seminary education probably available mm-hmm. to anybody for three years, He told them, "Don't do anything, don't touch anything until the Spirit of God comes upon you. Wait mm-hmm. to wait here in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high, really, and then you can be my witnesses to everyone." And so they, they did wait in Jerusalem, and, and the Spirit fell upon them at Pentecost, and then we see tremendous power in their ministries. Jesus, too, in his early life, apparently didn't do anything miraculous or anything until he was baptized in water, and at that time he was baptized in the Spirit as well because the Spirit came down upon him in the form of a dove. I believe that being filled with the Spirit in this way is something that is for every Christian, in fact, I think it's supposed to happen at the same time as conversion. Hmm. In the early days of the church, when people were converted, they'd baptize them in water, then they'd lay hands on them, get them baptized in the Holy Spirit. I think that was the norm. Hmm. And so because of that, the Bible often talks about the baptism of the Spirit as if it's the same thing as conversion, but they talk that way because they did it at the same time. Hmm. Uh, it's not the same thing, and it's certainly not unimaginable that the church might neglect to teach and practice the baptism of the Spirit while at the same time bringing people to salvation. Just because we're living 2,000 years later, we don't do things consistently the way that the apostles did, though we should. Uh, And in the case of my upbringing, I I I think I found the Lord when I was young, but I never heard of being baptized in the Spirit. So that which, if I had been converted in the first century, that would have been ministered to me at the same time as water baptism. Hmm. But because I was raised in a different tradition, 2000 years later, I had never heard of it. And so it becomes a subsequent experience for many people. There still are many people who are baptized in the spirit when they convert. I've known many who is when they get saved, they just get full filled with the spirit at the same time. But it's not not it can't be counted on to be automatic because it is something different. It is something that I believe needs to be asked for specifically jesus said if you earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to your children how much more, when they ask you how much more will your heavenly father give the holy spirit to those who ask him uh, of course you know from listening to my teaching about this i i believe every christian has the holy spirit but not all christians i believe are filled with the spirit mm. in ephesians one paul told the his readers that they had been sealed with the holy spirit when they believed but he told them later in the same book same people be filled with the holy spirit mm. as if that's uh, even though you've received the Spirit, you still need to be being filled with the Spirit. So we shouldn't assume that just because every Christian receives the Holy Spirit at conversion, that every Christian has been baptized and filled with the Spirit. That's something that many people, myself included, have to seek as a separate phenomenon.
0: Hmm. That's good. That's good. Steve, if you had to share uh, three practical tips with our listeners on how to do ministry well, what would those three tips be?
1: You know... It, I don't know. I, I I knew you were going to ask that question. I wasn't sure what three tips I would give. There's uh, certainly I, some of the things I've suggested already would be uh, on the list if, a, if it was a longer list. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just say the the main thing a person has to do if they're going to do ministry well is is be in the ministry that they're gifted to do. First of all, it shouldn't be assumed that if you you just go through Bible college you are qualified to be a pastor or or, or something or even if you're a good musician that you qualify to be in music ministry a worship leader or something like that uh, obviously a worship leader should be able to sing and and maybe play an instrument but but takes more than that you have to be a worshiper you know you've got to uh, and and not only that you may be a worshiper and still not be capable or anointed to lead people into worship you know there's there's this anointing from the holy spirit that comes on a person when they're baptized in the spirit and it's a different calling and, and gifting on different people and a person who's a, a musician like i was a musician uh, before i was baptized in spirit and initially i was in music ministry but that was just something that god led me out of because that wasn't really the ministry he had called me to in my opinion um, other people are called to be christian musicians or christian anything so, you know a lot when i think of the uh, when you talk about doing ministry, well, I don't know if you're thinking or your listeners are thinking mainly of public ministry type things, music, preaching, teaching, evangelism, um, you know, performing arts or something like that, which are all valid ministries. But I actually think the majority of Christians are called to do something much less visible things, and that is their calling in their ministry people. Right. Paul talks about a gift of giving, a gift of helps, a gift of exhortation, a gift of showing mercy. Right. I mean... Some people show mercy like Mother Teresa did and the world notices and applauds her. Other people do the same thing and no one ever knows their name, but mm-hmm. except God. And the main thing about doing ministry well is that you're doing it for God. Mm-hmm. You're looking for his approval, you're looking for his applause. You're looking for him to someday say, "Well done, good and faithful servant," and you don't care if anyone else ever does. Mm-hmm. And that's not that's not the natural way, uh, even with lots of people in ministry, they really want the attention. I remember hearing another guy, not Walter Mark, but another guy who had a show on the radio in the 70s. Similar kind of show. People call him with questions. And I'm going to call him, uh, I think I call him Bob Smith. Okay. Uh, it's not his real name. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I remember listening to a show and a caller called up, and, and this guy had like eight earned degrees or mm-hmm. something like that. He's a, he's a real scholar. A caller said, hey, brother Bob. And, and the guy says, that's Dr. Smith to you. I earned these degrees. I deserve to be called doctor. You know, I thought, okay, that guy's ministry just lost all credibility wow. with me. You know, I thought, how could a man know God and be offended when someone calls him Brother Bob instead of Dr. Smith? You know, I mean, it's, again, that wasn't his real name, but uh, I didn't want to give away his real name, but but the, the thing is that... Uh, it's, it's obviously just wanting to have credit from man. I did all these studies, you better call me by the proper title. That's, that's not ministry, that's professionalism. That's being a, it's being a religious professional. And I think an awful lot of people want to be religious professionals because there's money and recognition in it. But the, the main tip, the main practical tip is, I'd say don't even go into ministry if you're wanting the applause of men. Uh, you, you do it for God and only for God and a second thing i would suggest and this is something that uh, that i've done for my whole ministry and some other people i admire have done but probably most people don't i'd say don't make uh, don't make a profession of it in in the sense of money um there's nothing that'll lead a man away from pure ministry faster than than getting a salary for it and I'm not saying everyone who gets a salary gets led astray. I'm sure that there's many good men who are just really strong enough that they, though they get a salary, it never goes, it never becomes an issue to them. But most human beings are such that wherever their money's coming from is what's going to motivate them to do, well, whoever's paying their paycheck, they've got to please them. you got to please man if you're looking to man to pay your bills. Uh, and I remember... Uh, Not many people do this, but I I remember when I was young and going into ministry and had to decide how I'd be supported, uh, reading about George Mueller, reading about Hudson Taylor, Reese Howells, Brother Andrew, and others who didn't ever charge and wouldn't ever let people know what their needs were. Mm. Uh, I thought, well, that's the way I want to do it. And that's what I've done for 45 years. I mean, I did work part-time to support myself when I wasn't in full-time ministry for 12 years, but most of my uh, adult life I've... In full time in ministry, no, I, I, I wouldn't even dream of asking anyone to pay for my ministry. Mm. Um, because again, Jesus said, freely you've received, freely give. If you're charging people for what God gave you freely, you're in violation. Mm. You know, now I don't think there's anything wrong with raising support. You know, a missionary saying, you know, to his friends at church at home, I'm going to be needing X amount per month because the mission is going to require me to have that money. I mean, that's one thing that's not, that's not saying I will work for so much money. There's a difference between being supported and I don't even do that. I I don't even raise support. I've never have. I just figure God knows what I need. I'll tell him and he can tell someone else and they can give it to me if they want to, if God wants them to. And that's how I've lived. I've raised five kids who are adults. I've, I've never had, I mean, I've, I've lived without debt and, uh, God has provided everything without me ever telling anyone my needs or asking anyone. For, I've never asked anyone for money, not, wow. not even asked to take an offering for myself, because I felt like I don't want to begin to think of the ministry as the way I make my money. Mm-hmm. The ministry is what I do for God, and he's the one who supports me. That's the, that's the, the only mentality that keep, can, I think, keep ministry 100% pure of, of financial motivation. God takes care of my needs. I just do whatever he wants you know and no one I do anything no one I minister to owes me anything because I'm not working for them I'm working for God he he, and he doesn't owe me anything but he'll take care of me so I mean to have that mentality about ministry I think is a very important thing though very few people have it I'm not saying that people who don't have that mentality are bad people or their ministries are going to be disastrous or they don't bear fruit I just think you see having a salary Working for organizations, say, okay, I'll work, I'll work uh, forty hours, and you pay me this many dollars. Well, what's the difference between that in a secular job? I mean, suddenly you're uh, a mercenary. You know, you're basically selling your ministry time. I believe a, a person who's called to the ministry is called twenty-four-seven to ministry. Like doctors in the old days used to be woke, woken up to do, go do house calls in the middle of the night and so forth. Person's got to be willing to do that. If you you, you lose sleep, you lose. Uh, you know your your freedom of time and and so forth you even spend your own money you know if necessary to get places to do ministry uh it's not a job it's a slavery it's a happy slavery being a, a slave of God and knowing that whatever you do that's really what he wants is going to be something he'll finance he'll take care of it and I've you know I've done that for many many decades and it's True, God does provide. There's no one on this planet right now who knows what my needs may be at any given time, nor have there ever been. I've never let them be known. Sometimes I've never even told my wife, but uh, but I tell God, and money comes from the strangest places.
0: Hmm. Do you have a specific story of uh, what's the craziest provision testimony that you have? Well, one
1: of the great ones. I've had a lot because, of course, I've uh, my whole life paying my bills and raising my kids and everything was done by unpredictable gifts that were never solicited, that just came in the mail or came from somewhere. But uh, a couple of stories that come to mind, I, uh, I remember once when I was raising my kids and we we just didn't have any money. I mean, money came when we needed it, but we needed to pray for it every time. Right. And uh, I remember we had a utility bill to pay. I was living in Oregon. We Our u- utility bill was due within a couple of weeks and I think it was 80 bucks as I recall. Something like that was a lot of money to me then. It was back in the early 90s. And uh, I prayed that God would provide the money necessary for, for that bill to be paid. And that, that week I got two checks in the mail. Both checks came from very improbable places and from people who had never sent me money before or never did again. These are just one-time things. One was a $50 check from missionaries in India. I knew them. Mm-hmm. they actually were from YWAM and had gone I knew them here, and they 'd gone to india they 'd been there for years never wrote we we were not corresponding we i i'd never really been kept in touch with them. They never sent me anything and i didn 't send them any and Just this week, you know this particular time, a fifty dollar check from India huh. came, and the same week, another check came for thirty dollars from New Jersey. Now, the check from New Jersey was interesting because i didn 't know the guy uh, He had a note. He said, Do do you remember me? Uh, He says, You talked to me two years ago at a YWAM school in Sultana, California, where you were teaching. He says, I was on staff. We talked a little bit. I didn't remember him. I mean, I've talked to so many people in passing, and this was years earlier. But he said, I now live in New Jersey. And he says, The Lord just put on my heart to send you 30 bucks. So he sent it. And so those two checks came that week and paid the bill I had prayed for. Now, a a rather more uh, striking testimony would be uh you know i I raised my kids just trusting god for everything including we didn't have any health insurance Mm -hmm. never needed doctors when you're trusting god we you know god provides whatever way he wants to and in our case he provided by not ever causing us to need a doctor all my kids are grown and none of them ever saw a doctor Hmm. in their upbringing Uh, not because i'm against doctors it's just you you don't go to a doctor if you're not sick and uh jesus said those who are well don't need a physician only those who are sick so we didn't have any reason to go but uh all my kids were raised five kids were raised except for my youngest who is still at home he was 16 and a half so i was still going to be responsible for him for another year and a half uh he was out skateboarding on a sunday and he fell in a skateboarding park and broke his arm real bad He was with a friend, an older friend, who took him to the hospital and called me and said, Tim's broken his arm, He's, we're at the, uh, you know, the ER. So I went down there and sat with him for a long time. And Anyway, um, because we didn't have any insurance, they gave us a lower price uh, for the care. It was only a couple thousand dollars. It was almost exactly $2,000 that it cost me, which I managed to pay. And uh, But the reason I was able to pay it was that the day before, which was Saturday, I went to the post office and pulled out of the post office box. Uh, all the mail that had come in, one of them contained a check for two thousand dollars made out to me from someone I'd never met. is I've met him since, mm-hmm. but I didn't know him at the time. He' was a lawyer in Texas who listened to uh, lectures he downloaded from my website. and he just felt like sending me a personal gift, and he sent me two thousand dollars. It came on Saturday. My son broke his arm the next day. and It cost $2,000 to fix. And it was wow. it's funny because uh, as we were driving home from the hospital with his arm in a cast, my son said, now, don't you wish we had health insurance now to cover this? And I says, you've got to be kidding me. I said, I've, I've been raising kids for 38 years. If I'd been paying health insurance all that time, I would have paid $200,000 for this one cast. And instead, wow. I only paid 2000 and God sent me the check in the mail yesterday. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's... It, not all of them are quite so dramatic as that, but, but I mean, it really has been uh, the case that money comes when it's needed. If, if, if you're not living wastefully, see, we lived. I also believe, I mean, see, I have a different philosophy about ministry than many people do. I believe Paul was right when he said, having food and clothing, we will with these things be content. Hmm. Most pastors and, and preachers and so forth think they should be able to live pretty comfortably. Well, if God wants you to, he can allow for you to, but you have to be content with what he provides, even if it's just food and clothing. And I've always felt that from the time I was 16 till now. If I have nothing but food and clothing, the Bible says I should be content with that. And content means enough. That's enough. So, obviously, if you're still breathing, God has provided enough or else you'd be dead. <laughs> and so, if you're content with whatever you have, as the Bible commands us to be, God will always be able to provide whatever you need so one of the one of the keys to ministry is to be content and not be materialistic so i mean these are just some frankly i guess some people might consider these radical in our day and age to think this way but the apostles you know they they lived this way jesus lived this way and frankly i mean i was inspired by more modern people like george Mueller and, and so forth but i mean i as i read their stories i realized This is the way jesus lived no one no one drafted him a paycheck week by week you know who's who's his boss you know god was his boss his father and that's who took care of him and so with the apostles i can't imagine there was some organization drafting them a paycheck every two weeks you know They, they were supported as jesus was supported and as i am i'm supported too but there's a world of difference between being supported by the provision that God brings in from wherever he wants to, on the one hand. And on the other hand, saying, I will work this much and I'll get this much pay. I'll be your employee. Hmm. If you're somebody's employee, you're his servant. Hmm. I'd rather be God's servant. Hmm. It's much more exciting, for one thing. Hmm. And, and also, I could not have survived in the employment of an organization because I wouldn't have had the liberty right. to teach whatever I feel my convictions are and so forth.
0: That's good. Uh, Steve last question what's been inspiring you lately is there a book or resource a song uh, just what's served as a source of inspiration for you
1: well hmm I I don't I can't think of one thing in particular my whole my whole day and my whole life is filled with all kinds of edifying influx you know I've got a wonderful marriage my wife inspires me I, you know, I see the provision of God on a daily basis that inspires me, you know, when I read the Bible, it's, it's still fresh and, and uh, I learn things. I don't know of just one thing that's inspired me, but, uh, I, I guess life inspires me. I just feel like it's, it's so, such an adventure living for God and, and being, and just seeing him do whatever he wants to do. And again, I'm, you know, my ministry is not real well known. I don't expect it ever will be. No, my books are not bestsellers. I don't expect they will be. Uh, my radio show's not the best, uh, most often listened to. It's uh, a lot of people like it, but it's not. It's not the most famous. I just have never. I, I've always operated more or less in the shadows in my ministry, more or less. I mean, in some small circles, I'm, I'm known. But uh, I just, uh, just you got to love God. And if you love God, you love serving him. You love his will. You love doing what you can to promote him. But that's not what you asked. I, I'd say that there's not just one thing lately that's just been the huge shot in the arm for me spiritually more than anything else. I just have loved to see to to to, to walk with God, really, honestly. I mean, just walking with God is inspiring. Seeing his provision, seeing his seeing his truth and the word of god there's so many things in my life that that feed into my inspiration on a daily basis it's hard to hard to think of a book or so I I'm reading lots of books I read lots of books some of them are inspiring more than others some of them are <laughs> a little you know drab but but uh anyway there's it's there's not really just one thing that I can think of which makes me not a very good interviewee
0: no no that's good um can you just give us the address for your website in case listeners want to check it out?
1: Well, the website I have is thenarrowpath.com. The uh, the radio show is called The Narrow Path, and so all the radio shows are archived there, going back to 2006. Though I've been on the air since 1997, we don't have all the recordings from going back that far. But yeah, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds, thousands actually, of uh, radio programs that are archived. There's also about 900 of my lectures. When I ran the uh, Bible school, I taught through the Bible. All my lectures, hundreds of them are there. Uh, And they're all free, of course. Everything's free at the website. and Those are MP3 files people can just download. Or they can listen to the show live uh, from the website. But I'm also on a lot of radio stations they could listen to if they happen to live in the right cities. But the website is thenarrowpath.com.
0: Okay, great. And then I've asked, I emailed you this recently, and I couldn't find out where it was, so I'd love to just hear it from you now. You have a quote about patriotism that I've heard you say before, twice, and I remember just being so struck by it, but I couldn't find a direct quote, so could you just share?
1: Well, I don't know that I have a quote. I mean, I've, I've made comments about it before. You're talking about something original I said or someone I was quoting?
0: No, it was something original that yeah. you said.
1: Well, I'm not sure what it might have been, except that I—I I mean, I consider that patriotism can be idolatry, uh, because patriotism, by definition—and by the way, this isn't some kind of an axe to grind. This, you just asked about this right. subject, but right. uh, patriotism, it seems to me, is being proud of your country because it's your country. In other words, it's a form of selfishness. The Germans in World War II were patriotic toward Germany. The Japanese were patriotic toward. Japan we were patriotic toward America I mean whatever country is yours is the one that is the best mm-hmm. why because it's yours so to me it's 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 very much like school spirit you know why is your school the best is it because your team wins all the time no there it's just our school so we, we we root for our school you know it's it, there's nothing objectively that makes our school the best but it's ours so it's the best in our mind and I think that's often the case with patriotism now American patriotism is a little different because America is exceptional, or it has been in its history. Of course, it's it, right now, the direction much is going in America is pretty uh, is it, hard to get excited about. And it may not really be such an exceptional country anymore as it once was. but yeah. but in any case, uh, even if it's the greatest country in the world, we are citizens of another country. We're citizens of the kingdom of God, and we've been born again which is a change of citizenship. When it comes to our country we live in, we're ambassadors, domiciled here, ambassadors for the kingdom of God, domiciled in a foreign land, which is where we live. And, uh, and that's true even if it's our own home country, because the kingdom of God is not of this world. But I think that patriotism is, a, is, is in most cases a rather irrational position, almost like racism or sexism, you know? If someone thinks men are better than women, well, why do they think that? Because they're men, usually. And if women say, no, women are better than men, well, they think that because they're women. I mean, men aren't better than women, and women aren't better than men, but sexism is just whatever I am is better. It's just a form of selfishness. Likewise, racism. I mean, you know, there's certainly no objective reason in the world to think any race is superior to another race. Uh, But, you know, if I think, you know, I'm a white guy, so if I think I'm better than a black guy or a Mexican guy or a Japanese guy or some other kind of guy, well, there's no reason, there's no rational basis for me thinking that. That's just because I'm what I am and I'm my own God, you know, in a way. I mean, that's almost any kind of loyalty to a category that we belong to is just a form of self-worship. My country, my school, my race, my gender, you name it, it's, it's better because it's me that's what I am you know and uh, so I think that Christians are not called to be nationalistic or patriotic I think we should be law-abiding the Bible says that and the early Christians were they kept all the laws of the Roman Empire but they did not consider themselves to be of it they were uh, they were of the kingdom of God and they happened to be soldiers and ambassadors uh, stationed Hmm. in whatever country they were born and lived in
0: yeah, I think part of that patriotism teaching that I'm remembering is you talked about how just um, parents were considered their... Oh, sure. Soldiers. Oh, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, that's an, an illustration I sometimes give to see if, if patriotism might be idolatry for us. Because in many cases, when parents send their kids off to war for their country, they're proud of them. Mm-hmm. And although they grieve, if their kids are killed, their kids are seen as heroes. Mm-hmm. Whereas if their kids want to go off on the mission field to promote the kingdom of God, they think they're fools wasting their lives and, and if they die, martyrs on the mission field think it's what a tragedy that is, you know, I mean, dying for Jesus isn't quite as heroic as dying for the country, uh, making sacrifices, giving up your career, giving up opportunities to, to fight for your country is a great thing to do, but to do it for mission field, it's considered foolishness, which means, of course, we value our country more than we value God and that's, that is a form of idolatry.
0: Steve, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Would you just close us out by uh, praying for our listeners?
1: Sure. Father, I pray for anyone who might be listening who's in the ministry or considering ministry uh, that you would direct them into that which is their true gifting and their true calling. I pray, Father, that you would uh, fill them with your spirit and with your gifts that are necessary to do the work in the power of God rather than in their own strength so they don't become discouraged or burned out like so many people have in the ministry father i pray for purity uh, as you raise up new and fresh ministries uh, perhaps from some of the people listening today that they will come into the ministry with a with a radical vision for doing things jesus's way and doing things your way god and that they will uh, they'll they'll consider some of the things that we've discussed today uh, some of which are really uh, different different than what the assumptions are in our culture about ministry i pray that the merits of what i've had to say will at least be considered biblically and uh, perhaps there will be people who will see this as a way that that you're guiding them to go father i pray for everyone that you actually call into ministry of any kind that you would anoint them and guide them and uh, support them and give them fruit for your kingdom's sake in jesus name amen
0: amen steve thank you so much for being on the show thank you If you've enjoyed this episode of Doing Ministry Well, you can help us out by rating, commenting, and subscribing on iTunes and sharing this podcast with your friends. Check out the podcast notes to find out more about today's guests and other resources mentioned on this episode. To find out more about Doing Ministry Well, check out our website, www.doingministrywell.com. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions on who we should interview next, email us at doingministrywell at gmail.com. To find out more about me, your host, visit my blog at www.jimjessbaker.com. That's www.jimjess, as in Jessica, baker.com. All links are Amazon affiliate links and help us out when you make a purchase through them.